Well, sometimes you feel like you've already worshipped just uh, through the song service, don't you? This was one of those days for me. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 this morning? Genesis chapter 17. And we're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week in our study of Abraham and Sarah and uh, their handmaiden, Hagar. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, this is your word. You've given it to us. You say that uh, we are sanctified by the truth and that your word is truth. And so, Lord, we pray for cleansing today. We pray for uh, the ability to see truths, to be able to uh, grasp onto those truths, and to live for you as a result of them uh, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 17. In the 1950s, a psychologist whose name was Eric Erickson introduced a theory of how humans develop socially. He sees this as happening in a series of stages. You'll see them appearing on the the screen here. There were eight stages, uh, developmental tasks, he called them. Uh, So dependent on the stage of life that you were in, for example, if you were an infant uh, stage, uh, you needed to learn how to trust the world and your environment. And if you didn't learn how to do that, then you became a mistrustful or a distrusting person. Uh, School-age children, they learn to practice industry. And if they aren't uh, learning to be industrious in the world, then they develop a certain sense of inferiority, we're told. And then even in the latter stages of life, the older adult stage, they learn to develop a certain integrity in their life as they look back over and they attempt to put it all together. So Erickson saw us developing uh, socially through these eight stages. Actually, his basic philosophy might be said to boil down to two major themes, and you can see this as you work through the list. The challenges as we develop get bigger and bigger. The older we get, the larger the challenge, the greater the challenge. And according to Erickson, as we face these challenges, uh, he, he tended to believe that failure was cumulative. In other words, if you didn't meet the task as an infant, you carried that baggage of mistrust with you the rest of your life. Or as a preschooler, if you didn't develop initiative, you tended to, to carry the baggage of guilt with you the rest of your life. Now, there have been some critics of Erickson's theory that have especially taken exception to that second point, that failure being cumulative kind of point. It is true that an individual who fails to master one of those early stages is going to probably find it more difficult to navigate at later parts in their lives. Uh, For instance, we know that infants that aren't stroked or don't receive the right kind of attention early on in their lives, uh, many of those instant, many of those infants, have real struggles when they become adults. And in extreme cases, we even know of uh, infants who have died. Still, uh, there are evidences that the worst imaginable kinds of deficits that any person can go through. Think of an inner city childhood. Think of whatever you can think of. The worst possible deficits. uh, We do know that the human organism that God has developed has this powerful resilience, the ability to to overcome those kinds of things. And so there's something of a corrective to uh, Erickson's work. Uh, many people today see this less as a journey that you make and you just carry baggage and you never get a do-over. 
uh, a lot of people see this as sort of a spiraling back. So that, okay, uh, as an infant, you didn't learn to trust. Can you come back and spiral and rework that issue again? And many psychologists today are saying, yeah, that, that's a real possibility. Now, my reason for mentioning these things to you is not to prove to you that I'm a psychologist or to make you psychologists or anything, but uh, we're, we're studying the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And we saw last week in Genesis chapter 16, Abram, as he failed in a strategic faith-building task. Uh, I think God was teaching him, not of any of Erickson's eight stages, but I think God was teaching him to learn, you know that passage in Isaiah, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And what was the mistake that Abram and Sarah seemed to have made? They found it incredibly difficult to wait And I know it was a long wait, but they found it incredibly difficult, so incredibly difficult that they stepped out on their own. They made a stupid decision, and as a result of that stupid decision, Abraham and his whole family are now in a position I would describe as stuck. They're just stuck. Uh, Thirteen years have passed. See in Genesis chapter 16, look at verse 16, the very last verse in Genesis chapter 16. It said, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore to him Ishmael. Now look at chapter 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old. Between those two verses, between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, 13 Thirteen years, thirteen years have elapsed. And I can imagine what it must have been like to be in Abram and Sarah's household. I mean, there was probably still some tension there. Sarah has uh, uh, brought Abram into this position, and then she began to be accusatory of him. She began to make accusations. Uh, I I can see that continuing to a certain level. Hagar uh, begins to show a sense of pride, and this gets to the fears of Sarah. And I can see that not going away immediately. I can see 13 years of tension in this family. I can just see them struggling that way well and then on top of that boy you add into a difficult family already guess how old Ishmael is by now 13 you got a teenager in that mix so you add a teen into that mix and it hasn't made things better it's made it more difficult and in those 13 years and this is something really important to see in those 13 years not a word God has spoken. He hasn't said a word. Thirteen silent years. And so we're left with this feeling of stagnation, of disappointment, maybe even loss going on in this family of Abraham. Kent Hughes put it this way. He says, Some sins are such that the results cannot be taken back, and the pain goes on. And on. Now, I think the point of Genesis 17 is that in circumstances like that, in those times when we make these really dumb mistakes, in those times when we make mistakes that when we make them, there's no erasing them, there's no whiteout, there's no way to go back and do a do-over. When we make those kinds of mistakes, I think what Genesis chapter 17 is attempting to show us is that God spirals back around, comes to get us. 
And I think he shows us a way ahead. I think he's there to give us a pattern for growth. And I think that's what Genesis chapter 17 is attempting to teach us, at least in one way of looking at it. So specifically, I want to examine this passage to see if it doesn't show us, in fact, I think it does, show us three ways God wants his people to, three things God wants his people to know about their seemingly irreversible mistakes. Those things that we think we're never going to get out of. And, I think there are these three lessons. So look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 17. The verse says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. I'd like to suggest to you that these three verses tell us that one of the ways God spirals around and makes use of our irreversible mistakes is that he takes them and uses them to draw us closer. And I can see that in three ways here. First of all, notice the name. The Lord appeared to him and says, I am God Almighty. Now here we've got to do a little backtracking. Uh, In the first ten years of Abraham's, can I call it Christian experience? I know he's an Old Testament believer, but just sort of shorthand. Let's call him a Christian in the Old Testament. His Christian experience, in ten short years, God has taught Abraham some really wonderful things since the time of his conversion to the time of his mistake. For example, back in chapter 12, verse 1, the very first time we see God coming to Abraham, see it there in chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram. Now I'm using the New International Version in chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see that it's uh, uppercase L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in your Old Testament, that's the Old Testament translation, translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the word that translates into English. Moses learned it as I am. I am will be with you. Well, who should I tell people has sent me, Moses once asked. Tell them, Yahweh, I am, has sent you. So one of the very first revelations that Moses or that uh, Abraham got is this revelation of God's name, God as Yahweh, as I am. The significance of that is that in the Old Testament, Yahweh or I am seems to be sort of like Jim or Sam or Stu. It's his first name. Uh, So God is putting Abraham on a first-hand, personal basis kind of acquaintance with him. The salvation name. Hey, I am. Stu is here. Sam is here. Tom is here. Jim is here. And I don't want to be light with that, but it's God's personal name. In fact, even in the New Testament, Jesus at one point is asked, Who are you? And he says, Well, I tell you this, before Abraham was... I am. Jesus is claiming to be the same personal God. Gives us that. Now that's, that's a marvelous. That's a marvelous thing for this young Abraham to learn. Uh, 
Now, if you'll turn over to chapter 14, verses 18, 19, and 20, as Abraham grows in his faith, he's challenged. His son-in-law is carried off by a coalition of kings from the ancient Near East. Abraham goes to rescue him and is successful in it. And on the way back, he meets this strange figure, a figure known as Melchizedek. We're not going to park there. But verse 18 of chapter 14, something interesting goes on about God's name. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. I like to think of that as an early form of communion. We'd probably translate that bread and grape juice, though, wouldn't we? Brought out bread and wine, you know, for that early communion. He was a priest of God. Now, see the name there? Most High. God Most High. El Elyon. Now, then verse 19 explains the meaning of this Phrase. He blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, Creator. Okay, if the first name, Yahweh, is a personal name, the second name, God most high, has something to do with power. This is the Creator of the universe. And as if we didn't get that, look at verse 20. And blessed be God most high, who delivered you from your enemies. The Creator who delivers. The Creator who delivers. So this name is God's powerful name. His personal name. His powerful name. And then in chapter 15, verse 1, a third revelation. Really fairly quickly for 10-year growth pattern. That's the way many of us grow. Those early years are growth years. Chapter 15, verse 1, Abraham has now made some enemies. He's made an enemy of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah because he wouldn't take reward from him. He's made enemies of these kings that he went to rescue Lot from. And I think there's just a little bit of fear going on in Abraham's life. And so God sees this. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your reward. I'm not going to try to give you the Hebrew words there for that, but that's, that's one of God's names. Think of God as the shield. Think of God as the reward. Those two names add up to be what I would call God's protective name. So, bing, bang, boom. Very rapidly, in the first ten years of Abraham's life, he learned some really significant things about God by the revelation of God's name. Now then, Abraham's made a mistake. Thirteen long years have lapsed. There's been no new word from God. But we come to chapter 17, verse 1, and the first thing God does is to give Abraham a new revelation of his name. And so it says, The Lord, that's the word Yahweh again, Yahweh appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. El Shaddai. Remember the song? El Shaddai, El Shaddai. That's the word that's used here. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Now, we don't really know what that word Shaddai means. Some people think it refers to sort of mountain peaks. Forgive me, ladies, for the uh, analogy here, but some people think it's sort of like a mother who breastfeeds the child. So it has something to do with a mothering or a strengthening or a surrounding with comfort or whatever. But mostly people think that it refers to some something that has to do with God's power, but not just any power. In the five places this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it seems to emphasize God's promise-keeping 
power. And so Gerhardus Voss, an Old Testament scholar, once put it like this, God reveals himself on this next quote, God reveals himself as El Shaddai to stress his ability to overcome nature in the service of his grace, or we could put that to overcome whatever obstacle stands in the way of keeping his promises. So if we add all this up, now we've seen Yahweh, God's personal name. We've seen El Elyon, God's powerful name. We've seen Shield, God's protective name. And now after 13 years, El Shaddai reveals himself to, God, to, to Abram, God's promise-keeping name. Now when I, when I add all that up, it seems to me that this is what's going on. It seems to me as if God is saying, I haven't forgotten about you, Abram. You may have made an irreversible mistake. Humanly, your prospects may look very, very bleak, but I made a promise to you, and I am El Shaddai, and I intend to keep my promise no matter what. Now, isn't that the kind of revelation you like to hear when you've made a really stupid mistake? You know what, Jim? It wasn't about you. It didn't depend on you. It's about me, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose in your life. So he helps Abraham out here, drawing him deeper, giving him a deeper sense of his name. Now there's this command here. Not only does God come to him with a new name, but then he comes to him with this command in verse 2, or verse, the last part of verse 1. He says, I am God Almighty, else should I walk before me and be blameless. Now I bet you've done the same thing mentally with that verse that I would have done. You probably see two commands there, don't you? Walk before me, be blameless. Two commands. In the Hebrew, that's not the way this phrase is translated. In fact, there are three things that you ought to note about this phrase in Hebrew. Number one, it's just one command. There's only one command, and it probably should be translated something like this. Walk before me, and the outcome of your walk before me will transform you into the kind of person that becomes morally blameless. It's not two commands. It's as you walk in front of me, as you walk before me. I know you've done some dumb things in the past, but if you'll just walk before me, I'm going to see that your life is straightened out and you become the kind of person I want you to be and you want you to be. That's part of the. Now, also remember Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, before this command came, there was a foundation laid. It was, uh, the statement was made that Abraham believed God, and it, what? His belief was reckoned to him, or counted to him, or given to him for righteousness. Abraham doesn't have to establish any righteousness of his own. It's just like when we believe in Christ. Our righteousness comes from our position, our faith, our standing in Christ. I don't have to be something. I don't have to measure up to something. I'm in. I've made it on the basis of what Christ has done for me in placing my faith in Him. But now that that is there... Now God, on that foundation, wants me to begin to become a different kind of person. That's what it means to walk before Him. And that's what it means to be transformed. The New Testament translates it sort of something like, Become what you are. 
You are already righteous in Christ. Now, make your life more and more like that. Not that you're trying to earn anything. Nothing to gain. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. Just live like this and I'm going to transform your life. That's the second thing I notice about this phrase. Now, the third thing I notice here is the preposition. Uh, It says, walk before me and you will become, or I will make you, or I will transform you to be blameless. There are several different ways of uh, the Bible expressing uh, this kind of prepositional thing. Uh, sometimes we're told to walk after God. That's a preposition. Walk after God as his servants. Uh, I, was, I like to read the funnies. Uh, and uh, not that they're so funny anymore, but every now and then I'll pick up something. And I saw this one recently that they're... Can I say this from the pulpit? There were these two Arab ladies. They had the burqas on. And the one Arab lady was saying to the Arab la- other Arab lady, My husband showed me special favor today. He allowed me to walk three steps behind him rather than six. Walk after me? Walk. We've seen those cultures, haven't we? The culture where the husband walks in front and the wife is not quite on an even basis. She walks a couple of steps behind. There is that phrase, we are the Lord's servants. In one respect, we do walk. We follow after Christ. But that's not the preposition that's used here for Abraham. There's another preposition that could have been used. In the New Testament, we're told to walk with God as his friends. We sing a song here sometimes, I'm a friend of God, I'm a friend of God. We walk with God. And here's the picture that goes in my mind. You see a couple of uh, old uh, adolescents, uh, even boys. I mean, they just connect. And you'll see them sometimes just walking down the street, holding either hands or arm in arm. I mean, they're just connected. They're walking with each other. That's the image that's projected by that prepositional phrase. But that's not the word that's used here either. This word is to walk before God as children. And now here I want you to picture God. I'm hesitant to do this because I don't want you to draw the wrong conclusion, but as sort of a doting grandfather. Now, I was really, really tempted. i got to tell you, I was tempted this week. Pastor Rick, he's going to listen to this tape. Pastor Rick, I hope you're listening in to this particular phrase. Pastor Rick has taken advantage of this pulpit in the past. I just want you to know, speaking for all of us who are grandparents, he has actually shown pictures of his grandchildren up there, hasn't he? You know what I'm talking about. I was tempted to do that. Fortunately, Patty was traveling this week, and I couldn't get the pictures up there. I was going to show you my... There's something about being a grandfather. You don't have the responsibility of parents. You know, you don't have to take charge of anything. Oh, that's fine. Isn't he cute? Isn't she wonderful? They can make no mistakes in front of the grandparents. Right? So that's what God is saying. Here's the picture here. Abram, I want you to think of me in this image as a grandfather. And I want you to just walk in front of me. And you know, you're going to stumble. I'm going to watch you drop your Cheerios. I'm going to watch you put stains on your mother's carpet. And it's going to be okay with me. It's going to be okay. Just walk before me. But you know what? As we walk together, you're going to take on family characteristics. You're going to become like the family. You're going to have to be a fan or a smith or a Jones, or whatever. That's the way it's going to work. That's what this phrase is saying here. It's as if. 
God is saying, Abraham, you belong to me now. You're in my family. And I want you to know that I'm always going to view you with acceptance and with pride. I always will. Your sins have been paid for. That's not the deal. I want you to focus on how I see you. I don't want you to get all twisted up inside. I want you to know that I love you. And we're going to get there together. And when we do, you're going to be just like me in the end. And you're going to share all the family traits. I think that's the second way God draws us closer. Now, I think there's a third way. And we can do this one real quickly. You see this one here. It says, I am God. Walk before me. Now look at verse 2. I will confirm my covenant. I will confirm my covenant. I suppose it was possible for Abraham to have done this really horrid thing and God to come to him and said, You bad, bad boy. You're going to go to the woodshed now. You're going to get a spanking for this one. I, I, I am so disappointed in you, Abraham. But God doesn't do that. And how thankful I am He doesn't. What He does instead as he comes back and said, you blew it. Your salvation is not at risk. The promise I make to you is not at risk. Now, that's not to say that I want you to live this way. But what I do want you to know is because you're one of my child, you belong to me. It's a confirmation. You've made a mistake, but I haven't left you. My covenant with you is firm, and my promise with you, it still stands. Isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like the God of the Bible? We've blown it. We've done this stupid thing. We've wallowed in the mire. And He comes to us at just the right time. He comes to us with just the right revelation of Himself. He gives us just the right name to latch on to. He gives us just the right command. And He utters just the right affirmation. Isn't that just like God? Several months ago, one of the ladies in our Crossroads ABF, Joan Bungum, emailed me uh, a quote by Chuck Swindoll, and I'd like to share it with you. It, it goes like this. We can show it up here. Love this. God's plan includes all promotions and demotions. His plan can mean both adversity and prosperity, tragedy and calamity, ec- ecstasy and joy. And it does, doesn't it? It includes all those things. His plan is at work when we cannot even imagine why. It is at work through all the disappointments, through the broken dreams and the lingering difficulties. And even when we cannot fully fathom why, He knows. And even when we cannot explain the reasons, He understands. And when we cannot see the end, He is there nodding. Yeah, that's my plan. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. I think that's the way God draws draws us deeper. I think that's one of the things He does with our irreversible mistakes. Now you see there in verse 3, that first phrase, no wonder Abraham fell face down. Doesn't that make you want to worship this God? Doesn't that make you want to fall face down too when God comes to you in those irreversible mistakes? Don't you want to worship Him too? That's what God does. He draws us closer. Now there's a second uh, thing that God does for us when we make these mistakes that 
can't be done undone. I think in chapter 17, verses 4 through 8, what he shows us is that God will use them to make us more fruitful, and we'll unpack that here in just a second. But as I was reading through these verses, uh, a section that came to mind uh, was from a book by Henry Nowen. We actually used that for our worship service this morning, from a book entitled The Wounded Healer. The theme of Henry Nowen's book is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now here's the key phrase. Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any trouble themselves with the comfort we received. Now, Henry Nowen took that and called that being a wounded healer. And he says, The calling of a wounded healer is to offer to others the comfort we receive whenever we've gone through some kind of distress and been delivered. So Nowen puts it like this, and this is the quote we saw earlier. It says, Nobody escapes from being wounded. I bet not a single person here has. I bet all of you have experienced tragedies in your own way. Nobody escapes that. God doesn't promise escape. Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, physically, emotionally, spiritually. As wounded healers, however, the question isn't, how can I either hide my wounds or gain your sympathy for them? It is rather, how can I take that woundedness, my woundedness, and place it in the service of others. When our wounds cease to be the focus of our identity and become a a source of healing for others, then and only then have we become wounded healers. Now, I don't know what your wounds are. Each of them will be different. That's what makes up the body of Christ. The body of Christ each puts together their woundedness, and from our platform of woundedness we minister to one another. That's the way the body of Christ works. But now with that in mind, I want you to notice several things about this passage. There's a key phrase that occurs in Genesis chapter 17. You're going to see it over and over again, and I'm just going to focus on it. Look at verse 4. See the phrase, "...as for me." Would you underline that phrase? That's God speaking. He says, as for me. Now then in verse 9, it says, Then God said to Abraham, as for you. Do you see the phrase in your New International Version there? As for you. Now would you look at verse 15? God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, as for Sarai, your wife. Maybe you'll underline that as well. And then down in verse 20, as for Ishmael. As for... That's the way pastors put together sermons. They just look for the clues that are in the text. And so we're going to learn about four things here. We're going to learn something that God does. He says, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. Now, Abraham, you've blown it. As for you, this is what's going to happen. As for Sarah and her fears, this is what's going to happen with her. And as for Ishmael, that mistake that's there, this is what's going to happen with him. That's how this next pattern, this next part of the text breaks out. And now here I want to sort of uh, give a caveat. We're going to talk a little bit about God's sovereignty. And I've got to tell you, I haven't got God's sovereignty and human freedom figured out 
If you have, meet me in the lobby there and tell me how that works. But I haven't got it all figured out. I think, though, that there are a couple of things that all Christians can agree on when it comes to the as for me, as for God, his sovereignty part. God is specific about the big things, isn't he? He's specific about his promises. He's specific about processes that he was used. He's specific about the kind of person he's going to be. He's specific about those big things. Those don't change, as for me. But then in that big process, the big sovereignty of God process, there's also an as for you. There's an as for Jim. There's an as for Holly. There's an as for whoever. There's an as for you there. God creates room for us in the details. And that's what he's doing here. So I just really quickly want to look at some of the things that he's doing here. And look, first of all, in verse 4. As for me, God speaking, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. And I'd like to suggest to you that the first thing God does, the first thing God does is actually he's already done something just exactly like this. There's assurance again. He does not come to beat up on us. He's already given confirmation. Now he's come back again to give a second statement of assurance. Saying it once wasn't enough. He's now said it again. God is making it personal. As for me, I've made a covenant with you and I'm going to keep it. I don't care what you've done. As for me. One of the churches I pastored, you know, I used to work with uh, conflicted uh, congregations and spend time with them. One of the churches I was pastoring had been through this, you know, really tough time in their in their background. And I can remember standing, we were sort of in a basement setting that they had turned into a, a type of a fellowship hall. And we were trying to outline together, uh, the elders and, and me were trying to outline together a, a vision for a new future for this church that had been through so much. Uh, I wanted to help them to see a better road ahead. And so here we are, we're painting this vision as leaders do. And somebody stood up right in the meeting. I can still see her face as she's standing there. She said, but Pastor Jim, what about us? What about us? You won't forget about us as we move ahead, will you, Pastor? And, you know, in that question, I guess I could have scolded her. Well, we've got to catch a vision for the world. We've got to move on. But the thing that came really clear to me is that people won't risk anything. I won't risk. I bet you won't risk until you feel relatively safe somewhere. You've either got to feel safe in your abilities. You've got to feel safe in some relationship. You've got to feel safe somewhere. Before you'll take any risk. And so God comes back twice and says, I'll give you the somewhere. It's me. You can take a risk. You can broaden out because of me. And then that brings me to the third point here. He's going to ask him to broaden out here. And let me show you something uh, really interesting. Uh, Remember the first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Let's just flash that up there. Notice. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And who curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. You see the pronoun you, 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 you. It's all about me. It's all about me. Now, when I'm a new Christian, that's kind of the way I function. It's all about me. You, 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 you. But God's preparing Abram for something new. So now in Genesis chapter 17, here's the way the verse reads. You will be the father of 
Many nations. Oh, there's an expansion taking place. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. By the way, Abraham means father of a multitude. Instead of just Abram, which means something like exalted father, Abraham adds that little Abraham expression in there. I mean, father of a multitude now. And get this. I mean, he only got one son. Uh, uh, one of the pastors I was reading really plays with this. He says every morning Abraham would get up and, and uh, here he is. He's got this one son and, well, how are you this morning, father of a multitude? You know, how's your day going, father of a multitude? You know, are you enjoying yourself, father of a multitude? I mean, it's almost kind of in your face, isn't it? Abraham is being expanded to think of himself in bigger ways than he ever imagined. He's being broadened as a result of the mistake he's made. Father of a multitude, Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. The point of this all is that, you know, we talk about election in the Bible. I just have to tell you that election is a narrowing down to broaden out. God chose one man, Abraham, not to just stay centered on Abraham. But so Abraham, through his experiences and through his breath, he's going to reach out and he's going to begin to touch other lives. And he's going to be, he's a wounded healer now. Do you see that? He's a wounded healer now. Now and only now is he capable of touching other people's lives. Now, the fourth thing I see in this passage is that there are some unknowables for Abraham. And just like to track through you with these, look at verse 6. It says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Now, it's true. There are going to be a couple of nations. Isaac is going to have 12 children. Ishmael actually is going to have 12 children. They're going to create two great nations. And some of those nations still continue with us today, the Jews and the Arabs. There's great nations. But I'll tell you, there's something that Abraham couldn't see. He maybe could see Isaac. He maybe could see Ishmael, and by an eye of faith, maybe he could see a little bit further than that. But notice what Abraham could not see under the unknowable here with the nations thing. We've lost our... Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Any Jewish people here? How did you get here? You are a child of Abraham. How did you get here? By faith. Scripture saw long before Abram ever conceived of anything happening outside of his own Jewish family that you would be sitting here this morning. Abraham didn't see that. And you know, I make a stupid mistake. And God's going to expand that mistake. And there's stuff that I can't possibly know. There's impact that I can't possibly imagine. Nations. Now notice the second phrase here. He says not only are there going to be nations, there are going to be kings that come from you. I just did a real quick thing uh, at home before I came here. When the kingdom was united, when uh, there was one king over Israel, actually three of those. There was Saul, there was David, there was Solomon. And then there was a civil war in the kingdom. And the southern kingdom was called Judah, and there were 20 kings. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and there are 19 kings. A lot of kings come from Abraham, right? Abraham could maybe have seen something like that. I doubt that he saw all of it. But here's one thing he could not have seen. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. you see that word royal there? 
That's used of you and me in the New Testament. It's the same word that's used for kings in the Old Testament. We are kings in the kingdom of God. We are kings in the kingdom of God. And that's the way we will function at the second coming of Christ. Do you think Abraham saw that through his stupid mistake? And even th- I don't think so. I don't think he saw kings and queens sitting here getting prepared for a future kingdom. Now there's this third phrase. You'll see that down in verse 8. He says, the whole land of Canaan, where you're now an alien, I will give that to you as an everlasting possession. Okay, Abraham could maybe see the boundaries. By the way, we know those boundaries. It says all the way from the river Euphrates down to the great river of Egypt. That's a pretty large expanse. Go and look at that up on a map sometime. Abraham could possibly visualize how that was going to happen. But here's one thing he couldn't have seen. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be an heir of the what? Not just the land anymore, is it? Not just the land anymore. They will still receive the promised land. I think the Jewish people will. But the promise has now been expanded to include the whole planet. It's going to include the whole world. Abraham couldn't have seen that. Now, when God comes and touches you and gives you confidence and begins to make you fruitful and you start to examine your life and you say, I don't know what it's all about. I don't know what it's going to add up to. Woe is me. Oh, misery, misery. I've only done such few things, some little things. I haven't done much. I tell you what, there are some things you can't possibly have seen. And God's going to bring those to fruition in your life. Now, let me just show you one last thing here real quickly and then let's wrap this up. In chapter 17... um, uh, there are three more as fours. And so I want to see what happened now in the spilling over as the as for. As for Abraham, well, he says to him in chapter 17, verse 9, As for you, you must keep my covenant. And the way to keep the covenant for Abraham was to have this rite of circumcision. Circumcision. Conversation, I think, probably goes something like this with the strange rite, circumcision. Abraham, what you can produce naturally, children like Ishmael through people like Sarah and Hagar, what you can produce naturally will not bring my blessing. I'll use your natural gifts as you yield them to me, but Abram, circumcision is going to stand for this. This one's on me, and it's on me alone To make this clear, I'm going to create a people whose existence can only be traced to me. And I'm going to begin at the exact place where you made your biggest, most irreversible mistake. That is at the point of procreation. God is saying for you, I've taken your irreversible mistake and I have now supernaturally reversed it. I'm going to use this thing for my glory. Now, Sarah, as for Sarah in verse 15, as for Sarai, your wife, remember the story we were telling last week? Sarai, the little princess, who was defined by her relationship to her father, who was defined by her relationship to her husband, who was defined in her relationship as a parent. She had these fears that traveled with her. She couldn't overcome them. That's part of what led her to make the serious decision that she made, the mistake that she made. Well, what about Sarah? As for Sarah, God says, I'm going to change your name. 
I'm going to include you. I I think this is just one of those wonderful things. You are no longer the little princess. You are now Sarah, my princess. I will bless her. And I will surely give you a son by her. There's the first time it's said. Sarah, you've done a dumb thing, but you're included now too. I quoted from Carolyn James last week, her book, Lost Women of the Bible. Here's the way she puts it. Up to this point, Sarah had fallen into the same trap that threatens all of us. She listened to the voices of her culture. She listened to her circumstances. She listened to people around her who were telling her who she was, what she would, what would make her life fulfilling, and how she would count. We hear those voices too, Carolyn James says, telling us we're missing out or that we're deficient. Those messages come to us not only through our culture, but they come through well-meaning Christian friends sometimes. They do not speak for God. In the end, Sarah learned this. Now at long last, she would learn unforgettably that her identity and purpose come not from being a wife, not from being a daughter, not from being a mom. Her identity comes from God alone. My princess, stop trying to earn your way into somebody's kingdom. As for Ishmael, well, you see him down there. Abraham prays for him. He, Abraham loves his son Ishmael. He's going to be replaced by Isaac as the leader of the promise. But does that leave Ishmael out in the open? Well, no. God says, I've heard you. I'm going to bless Ishmael. He's going to get good earthly things. But there's a decision Ishmael is going to have to make. Will he enter into the promise when Isaac comes? Will he receive the blessing in the way I intended to be? New Testament terms. Will he accept John 3.16 or not? even though he's not the bringer of salvation. The decision is Ishmael's. It was in his day. And just as it is for you and I today, so it is for the Arab peoples today, the descendants of Ishmael. They're no worse, no better than any other group of people on the planet. And the same decision confronts them that confronts us. Will you receive the promise? Will you receive the promise? Well, sometimes we don't get a do-over. I'd like to say to you that I think that's okay. Based on Genesis chapter 17, I have gospel for you today. I have good news. God's promise concerning our irreversible mistakes is that He can and He does and He will use them to draw us closer to expand our impact, and to show His grace to the whole world. Now, I don't know about you, but apart from the grace of salvation, I really can't think of much better news than that. Can you? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank You for this marvelous uh, passage in the Bible. We've only just scratched the surface, I know. But Lord, You've taught us a lot. You've taught us a lot about ourselves, that uh, we are fallible and we do fail. You've taught us even more about yourself, that you come and you assure us and you reach out to us. You draw us closer. You make us more fruitful. 
You make us emblems and displays of your grace. Lord, we receive this message today. And we ask God to help us to live in that light. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.